Father, if the security of our salvation depended on us, we know we would fail every time. We could never keep our salvation. We would lose it again and again if we could ever gain it again. And so, Lord, we trust in your strength to hold us fast. We trust that in your strength to save us, that you would regenerate our hearts and change us and compel us and enable us to believe in you and repent of our sin. And, Lord, we know that you continue to do a work that you began in us all the way to the end. You will hold us fast. So, Lord, we trust in this. We believe in this. And, Lord, it is because of that belief we come to your word again and again, believing that your word will change us. It will sanctify us just as your word came to us in salvation. Your word will come to us again and again, changing us and making us more like your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we also trust that your word will come to those who need a warning of the things to come if they do not believe in your son, Jesus We pray that your word would come to them even today if they're not believers, true believers. Call them to salvation. Call them to faith in Jesus. and Compel them to repent of their sin and follow Jesus all the days of their lives. Lord, it is by your strength that we can pray these things, and it is because of your strength that we ask for these things. We do so in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's a beautiful day, as usual, to gather together and worship with one another. Let's bring our worship of God to its climax by studying His Word with the desire to obey. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, there we find ourselves with Jesus and His disciples. In the last week of Jesus' life up on the Temple Mount, and what we have is a good old-fashioned showdown. Jesus versus the authorities there in first century Israel. Jesus continued to debate with the scribes and the Pharisees and the other authorities up there on the Temple Mount, and He did this all the way to the end of chapter 23. But in the next chapter, chapter 22, it's a little bit different. It's a little broader. Yes, He's still interacting and debating with the leaders, but there's a little bit of instruction for everyone who's there. seems He has a dual intent to give instruction to all. But then in 23, chapter 23, he aims back directly at the false leadership of the false Judaism of Israel and issues seven curses or seven woes. Woes are curses. Now, those woes, those curses in chapter 23 fall directly in line with the parable that we see today. In verse 40, Jesus asked, what will the master do with those wicked tenants? And they rightly answer him there. He'll put those wretches to a miserable death and give the vineyard to others. It says in 45, then they perceived he was speaking about them. They understood the basic understanding of this parable. The parable we're looking at today is a story of how Israel's leadership had veered from biblical Judaism into a false Judaism, a Judaism that would reject Jesus. Sadly, most of the Jews followed that leadership and even do so today. To use Paul's vernacular, because of this, they were broken off, the Gentiles grafted in. These are the new vineyard tenants, by the way. But of course, there is that great promise that God's original pre-people, Israel, will turn once again to Him. And down at the end of chapter 23, there is sort of this new Palm Sunday, only that Palm Sunday will be genuine. The first Palm Sunday was not And we studied about how tragic that Sunday or perhaps Monday was. It was a tragic time of people 
somehow understanding something about Jesus but not truly receiving Him. And then we see it happen in reality there at the end of 23. Well, what are we going to learn today? The ultimate truth as we gather and walk through this, uh, uh, complete, uh, this, through, through this complete parable is a, is a warning. This is an extreme warning. Jesus wants to give them a warning, a, a really firm warning to everybody who's listening. It's, it's His last week of His life, and He knows that many of these people will have the blinders on, and they'll just follow that leadership in Israel. Wherever that leadership goes, they'll just sort of stumble into whatever they're believing, whatever they're teaching, whatever they're leading, and they'll just follow that. And so Jesus has an opportunity there, His last week of His life, to go up on Temple Mount and issue these warnings. And this is the firmest one toward these leaders, these false leaders. And I believe it's Jesus' hope that people would see this and take warning. Whether you're a first century Jewish leader, a 21st century Gentile, rejecting Jesus is the ultimate curse. It, is, it will result in ultimate death. So let's walk through this today. Follow along as I read aloud, beginning in verse 33 of Matthew 21. Jesus is speaking. He says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. In the season of fruit, for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those tenants? They said to him, He'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables. They perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. May God bless the reading of his word. I think it was a little less than two years ago, I think it was June of 2020, we studied Matthew 13. And if you were with us, you may remember that Jesus used parables in a, a, sort of as a two-edged sword in two distinct ways. Parables, their surface meaning was understandable by just about anybody. It was accessible. People could you look on the surface, even the, uh, the people here who don't like Jesus, who are resistant to Jesus and the truth. These people understand the basic idea of the parable. I think anybody can understand the basic idea of the parable, but the action of the parable, the true knowledge of the parable in the application, the obedience of the parable, only comes to those who are gods, 
And so on the one hand, parables are a blessing to those who believe and follow after Christ. They teach us about the kingdom. They teach us about Christ. Those Matthew 13 parables are kingdom parables. They're teaching us about Christ. The other side of the coin or the other side of the sword is that it's judgment toward those who don't believe. It is condemnation. It is a curse. It is an announcement of God's condemnation on their souls. And Jesus told this parable to the leaders of Israel there. The meaning of the basic idea was there. They understood it. But the knowledge, the true heart knowledge, did not come to them. I mean, he gives this exact story about people killing the son. And they even understand, this is about us. And yet, then they turn around and say, how can we kill this guy? The knowledge has not dawned on their heart. They are not honoring the son as Psalm 2 talks about. Absolutely amazing. These people miss the truth here. That really teaches us a little lesson as we get started. It teaches us the lesson that you can live in very close proximity to the gospel, the things of Jesus. I mean, these people were right there and heard the teaching of Jesus. I've heard people say, you know, maybe I would follow Jesus if I was around Jesus. Probably not. You probably wouldn't. Just based on the fact that we see all these thousands of people hearing Jesus and rejecting Him. And here are these men who are leaders in Israel, supposedly. They're the ones that know the Scriptures the best. These are the men that supposedly understand the Messiah. In fact, they do have some sort of surface understanding. Jesus is giving them all these fulfillments, not just in terms of His, uh, his uh, lineage, His genealogy, not just in terms of where He was born, not just in terms of the, the progress of His life, but even miraculous, empirical evidence that He is the Son of God, the long-hoped-for Messiah. And yet they reject Him, and they want Him dead. So let's learn this sad parable together. My prayer is that God will do a work in our hearts. If He's not already done that, if He has already done a work in your heart, my prayer is that we'll check ourselves, we'll prove, we just learned, we just heard it, prove whether or not we're in the faith, we'll look at our hearts, look down deep, do we really have genuine faith in Christ? And if so, to take warning about the false religions that are everywhere. I mean, here is Judaism. This is supposed to lead people to the Messiah. And yet the kind of Judaism, the false Judaism that was prominent in that day, led people away from the Messiah. Verse 33 there. Let's just start this. Verse 33, look there with me. It sets the scene. Here another parable. Jesus had told the parable of the sons, and now here's another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, this would have been something that was very common. This is something that they would have understood uh, in that day. It was happened, something that happened all the time, very common occurrence. Not very many people owned land. It would be the more wealthy people, and the wealthy people would either sell it, build on it, or they would uh, use it for farming. They would do produce. And of course, they themselves, the wealthy people who owned all these other lands, they most likely wouldn't farm it themselves. What they would do is they would hire tenant farmers. And these farmers would come in, and there would be an agreed-upon price. Perhaps it was some of the produce. Perhaps it was money that he would pay them. They would, they would agree on a price at the beginning, and the wealthy person, the master, the Lord, would, would move away, would go away, perhaps to another place or to where he lived, with the assurance that he would come back one day and pay them their due prices as the produce came in. 
When it was a vineyard, you would have these elements, and we see these elements, the vineyard, the fence around it, that would protect it from animals and perhaps even people who might steal. A wine press, that's the pit it talks about. And then it built a tower. The tower would be, again, for protection, but oftentimes the tower was used almost like a silo. They would take the produce in there and, and shuffle it around and move it until it was ready. The grapes were ready to be pressed. And this is a very normal thing that would happen, all a very normal picture, a common picture in that day. Like a lot of parables, it starts with something that everybody would understand. Everybody understood this is a business and this would happen, and they'd probably seen it happen in their own communities. Now, I want you to notice something here. Everything that the master does, the Lord does here, is for the benefit and the health of the vineyard. The land is there for the vineyard's nourishment. The tower is there for the protection and shade and storage of the produce. The fence is there is also for protection and boundaries. The tenants are there for the health and the pruning and the assistance on behalf of the landowner, overseeing the whole project. The tenants themselves, the ones who are in charge of this activity, these people themselves are probably most blessed of all the people that are there and all the people in the area. They were the ones that would receive the produce. They would see the work of their hands come to fruition. They would see what would happen, and then they would get paid for it all and be very blessed. I think the point of this first verse is to show us something that's quite normal, but also to help us remember that the master is doing everything for the health of the vineyard. Supplying for them all they need to provide for the vines, to protect, to provide for the tenants, to produce the wine, and they would be the most blessed. Reading there in 34 is where the story kind of gets interesting. When the season for fruit deer near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Normal so far. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Yet he sent other servants, more than the first. They did the same to them. The master sends his servants to the vineyard run by these tenants to pick up the share, his share of the produce. The season was now in. The grapes possibly, the wine was ready. It was already being sold. It was his land. They were uh, ones who had leased it. They were the ones who were on it, working for him. They were tenant farmers. He funded the whole endeavor. He put it all together. He prepared it for them. He protected it. What he does was common, and he sent servants to go and pick up his portion of the proceeds. It says the first servant was beaten and sent back empty-handed. Word, the word there is uh, like the word where we get flogged, the idea of being flogged or scourged, leaving permanent scars. They flayed him. They tore his skin. His second servant says they killed him. Mark says uh, in, about this parable that they treated him shamefully. And the third one, they stoned, perhaps they stoned him to death, we're not really sure, but they stoned him, they pummeled him with large stones. As I looked at this, I asked myself a question, what in the world are these tenants doing? What are they trying to do? Why would they do this? Well, they're trying to send a message. This is our land now. Master, Lord, not yours. It's ours. Whoever you send to tell us it's not ours to take what we think is ours, we're going to kill them. We're going to try to send a message that you better not send anybody back. 
It's almost like they took something out of the, the movies where they, they, kill, they kill them and they leave one alive to go back and send the message. Go back and tell the master, don't send anyone else. This is our place now. We don't care how much money you spent. We don't care the fortune you spent to put this together, the fortune you put, spent to, to establish this business. It's ours now. We own it, not you. Now, Jesus is a master teacher. On that Judean morning, he's up there on the Temple Mount. He's telling this story, and there's many, many people all crowded around, hundreds if not thousands of people all crowded around quietly trying to listen, trying to hear his story. And, and Jesus is such a master teacher that we're told in Luke that people actually at this point started to shout out, no way, surely not. I just imagine the picture. Jesus is such a, a masterful teacher and storyteller. People are just sucked into this story so much so that people are shouting out. Now look what happens, verse 37. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. Now, I cannot stress enough, and I've mentioned this so many times before, I feel like I'm a, a broken drum. I'm just beating this over and over again. But I cannot stress enough how in Jewish culture the son was the same as the father. This is why Jesus said, when Jesus said he was God's son, they blamed him for blasphemy because it was the same thing as claiming to be God. He had all the rights, all the privileges, all the authority, all the power, and then one day he would inherit everything. So get this in your mind, that this story, by sending the son, it was the master in essence saying, you know, I'm going to send my son, but in essence, this is me. This is uh, the express image of me being there. I'm there. They can see it's my son. If I send my son, it's like me being there. Surely they will respect me. Therefore, they'll respect my son. And surely they will understand the kind of wrath that would come to them if they disrespect me by disrespecting my son. Verse 38, when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, this is absolutely asinine. In what world, in what judicial system does this work? You kill someone who's about to inherit something and you get it? It's ludicrous. It's demented. It's stupid. But this is exactly what the Jewish leaders were doing, right? They knew Jesus was the Messiah. He matched all of the prophecies. He gave all the empirical evidence. But they thought, this is our vineyard now. Israel is ours. This is our power. By killing Jesus, we can, we can have this power. We can inherit what is due him. Asinine. Stupid. I would say it's demonically demented. It's like they're having a mental breakdown. How can you think that this will turn out good for you? This won't turn out good for you at all. This is going to be a disaster. I think the crowd, again, was so involved in this, probably because, not just because Jesus was a master storyteller, but it does remind them of the story in 2 Samuel 12. You know this story. Some of you know the story about David, King David, right? He had uh, seen a woman that he liked. Uh, long story short, he killed her husband so that he could have her. Very, very wicked thing that David did. God sent to him a prophet. The prophet Nathan came to him, told him a story about a man that had a small lamb. 
who was next door neighbors with a man who had many, many sheep. And one day when the wealthy man with all the sheep wanted to eat, he took that man with one sheep, took that lamb, slaughtered it, and feasted. Nathan asked David, what should we do with the rich man who stole and slaughtered the only little lamb that the poor man owned? And of course, that was the most self-indicting thing when David said we ought to deal with him with severe, fatal justice. This is essentially what Jesus is doing with these people. He draws them on. He brings them on the story, and they're just indicting themselves when He asks them a question about what, we should, what should we do with these tenants? What should we do with these wicked people? Well, as with any parable, we need to understand the meaning, and as we understand this analogy, I think the points will sort of fall from that. So, uh, let's walk through this. The Master, of course, this is clearly God. This is God over and over through the parable, Jesus used this heightened word for master, kurios, which is really Lord, same word they would have used for Adonai in the Hebrew. God owns it all. He's the master. He's the owner. He is the one that graciously provides everything necessary for life and godliness. He's setting up a vineyard for success and joy. And those who are involved in that, particularly the tenants, are going to be blessed. The vineyard represents the people of God. You could even say the way the people of God relate to the Lord. This is Israel and the Israelites, their relationship to God. They're owned by Him. They've been provided for graciously by the Master. In fact, in Isaiah 5, again, if you were a good Jew back then, you would know Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5, God actually describes through Isaiah, describes Israel as Yahweh's vineyard. Same process. I won't read the whole thing to you, but let me get, begin in verse 1 of Isaiah 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning His vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it only yielded wild grapes. We learn how Israel turns away. Well, this gives us the first basic point here. Maybe you want to mark it down. Number one, Israel is God's vineyard. Israel is... God's vineyard. So God is the master, very obvious here. Israel is God's vineyard. Easy to see this. God created them. God raised them up, protected them, nourished them, helped them all along the way, planted them, not for their sake, but for His name's sake. It's pretty easy to see this here. I think everyone can understand what's going on. What did God do for that vineyard? Well, He assigned to that vineyard some workers, tenants, Workers who would nourish and keep that vineyard, they themselves, they would benefit probably most of all. These tenants, of course, are the ones that God allowed a certain authority among the people of Israel. Last week I mentioned to you the scriptural authority in Israel, Levites, priests, chief priests. In the Old Testament it was a little bit different from when Jesus was there. You did have those, but in the Old Testament you also had Israelite kings. You had some judges as well. And of course, in Jesus' day, you had all these other authorities that had been drummed up through the years. But the tenants are clear here. They don't own the vineyard. They're just going to be blessed by serving the vineyard and helping the vineyard produce. They're going to be blessed and honored as they take the produce of that vineyard and give it to the Lord. Again, these are the religious authorities to help Israel become productive and healthy and nourished. 
That's why they were brought in. That's why God allowed them the authority and the stewardship that He did. But what happened? Not only did they complicate and add, as I said, to the scripturally defined authorities, they wanted the praise and the produce for themselves. They wanted the produce from the vineyard. They wanted the money from the people. They wanted the popularity. They wanted the praise. They wanted the authority, the influence. That's what they wanted. They craved that. And they hurt for it so bad that they were willing to kill for it. That was the people, the religious leaders of Israel. And they wanted all of it. They wanted none of it to go to the master. They were given this great joyous responsibility by God, but instead of using it for its purpose and glorifying God with it, they wanted to bless themselves and glorify themselves. I mentioned to you down in verse 45, they, the religious leaders, this is the, Mark says, the Sanhedrin, Matthew mentions the chief priests and the scribes or the elders, they perceived he was speaking of them. They knew they were the wicked tenants here. They knew this was about them. And so did everyone there that day when Jesus told this parable. They had taken their role, created unbiblically, new roles, titles, authoritative groups, and they used that whole convoluted system to steal from God what was rightfully His, praise and glory and the product of His people. Well, what happened in this parable and in Israel's history? Number two, God sent prophets who were mostly rejected. God sent prophets who were mostly rejected. These are the servants that the Master sends. You see, in Israel history, it wasn't the first time that the religious leaders persecuted those who spoke the truth. If you read the Old Testament, beginning at the very beginning with Cain and Abel, Aaron and the golden calf, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Kor, the corrupt judges with the priests Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, with all sorts of wicked kings and priests throughout Israel's history, there were those who, just like the leaders of Israel in Jesus' day, they used their power and position to steal from God. And sadly, the people followed them into a vile, this vile, wicked behavior. Now, throughout the history of Israel, God sent servants. He sent prophets. As this was happening, He sent servants. He sent these prophets, preachers who would come and call the people back to God, back to the Word. These prophets would reform the people. They would preach against the false religion. They would preach against the false authorities. They would give them God's Word. But throughout Israel's history, the religious elite and often kings and other even scriptural authorities abused their authority in the same way that we see here in Jesus' day. They persecuted and mistreated and killed God's servants, God's prophets. Think about Abel. I mentioned Abel. Abel, Jesus calls a prophet. If you think about it, it makes sense. Abel was there giving the Word of God to his brother Cain. Just explain to him, this is what God demands of us. This is what we're supposed to give. This is the kind of uh, sacrifice we're supposed to make. And what happened? Because he told his brother that. He was killed for it. Very first murder. We're told that Isaiah, the prophet, was sawn in two with a wooden saw, which is probably what is referred to in Hebrews 11. Jeremiah was thrown into a pit and stoned. 
Ezekiel was rejected pretty much the entirety of his ministry. Amos ran for his life. Elijah ran for his life. Zechariah was rejected and eventually stoned. Micah was smashed in his face to death, it says. And on and on and on. This is exactly what Jesus says of the leaders in Luke 11, 47 to 51. Listen to what Jesus says, "'Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. You see, this had happened, had happened for centuries in Israel. And God kept on sending His servants and sending His prophets to give them the Word, to bring to them truth. And yes, there was always a remnant. There were always those who believed. But by and large, they continued to be rejected, continued to be hated, continued to be killed year after year, decade after decade, century after century. And you have to say, what a gracious God. I mean, I think if I were God at that point, after the first couple servants that I sent died... I just wipe Israel off the face of the earth. God, for thousands of years, continued to show mercy and grace, sending prophet after prophet after prophet. What a gracious God, and we can thank Him for that. But patience. You know, a lot of, a lot of times people read the Old Testament, oh, it's a book about judgment. There's all, God is so judgmental. I, I think it's really more a testimony of God's kindness and grace to a wicked people, sending them prophet and preacher after, one after the other showing grace and kindness. What patience, what long-suffering. But when they reject the Son, there is judgment. And that brings us to point number three. God sent His Son who was the most rejected. The Son here is clearly Jesus, God's Son. It even says in Mark's accounting that this is His one or His beloved Son. And this Son is God, all the power, all the rights, all the authority, and one day all the earth is His inheritance. And I don't think we need to push this analogy so far to say uh, God was up throughout the centuries sort of wondering what to do next with the people of Israel. It says that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the earth. This was the plan all along, that the Messiah would come and be a lamb. This is the story is told from the, the tenants' perspective, what the tenants were doing, what was happening in the vineyard. They were sending, God was sending prophet after prophet, servant after servant, and they were killing him until finally he sent the son. The religious leaders knew who he was. They knew who he claimed to be. They were the ones, we saw this at Christmas time, we saw when we first started Matthew, they were the ones who told Herod where the Messiah, the king of Israel, was to be born. They knew this. They understood this. They understood the parable. They understood with their minds what was going on here. But they did not understand this with their hearts because they did not repent. They did not turn. And again, sadly, like sheep, many of the people of Israel would just follow these false leaders I want to show you what Jesus did. First, Jesus asked, what should the master do? Verse 40, 
When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Mark mentioned that they also added they should cast him out of this, cast them out of the city, these tenants, which ironically is exactly what the people, the leaders of Israel did to Jesus later on. Then he says, the vineyard should be given to others, the people shouted. Again, some irony here. Why? Because this is exactly what happened. Jesus came to his own, and his own, what? Received him not. Because he was rejected by Israel from the leaders all the way down, then the gospel went to the nations. In fact, the word here, alois in the Greek, others, it means oftentimes Gentiles, others. Romans 10 through 11, Paul says that Israel, though Jesus held out his hands, gave them the truth, they rejected him. A few remnant ethnic Israel believe that God cut off the rest of Israel like branches on a tree and grafted in Gentiles into that tree. In fact, Paul goes on to say that Israel became enemies of God. Enemies of God. And this is clearly happening right here on the Temple Mount. We see Israel becoming the enemy of the Messiah and therefore the enemies of God. Now, just so you remember, Paul does mention toward the end a little bit of hope. He mentions this is a partial, and I take that uh, what it means when he says it's a partial hardening. I take that to mean a temporary hardening of the Israelites because in the end, once the elect Gentiles are saved, Israel, it says, as a whole, in a sense, many Israelites will repent for murdering the Son of God, for rejecting Jesus. In fact, we see this, like I mentioned earlier, in the bottom of section 23, this, this idea of a renewed Palm Sunday, a Palm Sunday that would happen again, only this time the Jews would be genuine in singing Hosanna. Jesus then quotes from Psalm 118, and what's the big deal about this? Well, it's because this is their Passover song. This is where they got the idea of Hosanna. They prayed in that song, they sang that the discarded stone of Israel become the cornerstone. It had become the cornerstone of the world. They prayed and sang that that very week. They had been singing it probably as they made their way to Jerusalem, as they made their way up to the Temple Mount. Cornerstone is the foundational stone. Oftentimes, it's the biggest and heaviest stone. All other stones were anchored to it. Measurements made from that stone. In today's vernacular, it would be a foundation. A large, flat, heavy, solid foundation upon which everything else is measured and built. Now, Jesus takes this analogy and shows that He ultimately is the cornerstone. It's not just Israel. It's an Israelite. It's Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. And he would be cast aside, but he would become the foundation for all who believe and make up his majestic kingdom. What a glorious story, a story of God's saving grace, a story of kindness to us. You know, we look at the Jewish people, and I'm sure that some of us might be tempted to look down, but we're really no different. We need Christ. We need regeneration. We need something to change us. Our ancestors, I was talking to someone last week, our ancestors, most of us, if we're Gentiles, our ancestors were uh, running around in forests worshiping false gods when the Israelites were at least trying to worship the one true God. It's because of their people that the 
Word of God came and was established and survived through the years. The oracles of God, Paul says, came to them. It was because of their rejection that the gospel began to spread in that early world and then spread all the way to the absolute opposite side of the world, their little island in the middle of the Pacific where we gather and worship Jesus. So we can thank God for that rejection because it means grace for us. Again, we can thank God also for His grace to the Israelites in the future that it will come again one day. Well, as much as I'd like to end there, because that's sort of a positive note, Jesus does not end on a positive note. I'm just going to give you what's here. I'm not going to give you what sometimes people want to hear. It's not real positive here. Jesus is not Joel Osteen, that's for sure. It's not the smiling. I don't imagine Jesus was smiling. He's not the smiling preacher here. Therefore, verse 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The chief priests and Pharisees heard this parable. They perceived he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Number four, rejecting Christ is certain death. Rejecting Christ is certain death. Now, just in terms of hermeneutics, some people make a little bit about these different phrases, someone falling on the stone or stumbling on the stone as opposed to being crushed by the stone, and maybe there is some sort of difference there. I don't see it. I think it's just another way of saying the same thing, of emphasizing this truth. Maybe I'd leave room. I'm not going to die on that hill. If, if, someone could, if someone could convince me that it could mean something different, but at the very least, we know that the rejection of this cornerstone, the Messiah, will lead to destruction. Whether it's being broken to pieces or being pulverized, that's judgment. Paul said the gospel to pagans is folly. It's stupid. It doesn't make sense. For the Jews, and I think Paul is referring in 1 Corinthians 1 about to this very parable. For the Jews, the story of Jesus, His story, the gospel, is a stumbling block. And Jesus is up on that temple mount. He's crying out, the day is here. The day is nigh. It's happening right now. What God said back in the prophets that I give my people a certificate of force, it is happening right now. And Jesus is calling His fellow Jews not to follow the leaders. Their leaders are corrupted. They had turned Judaism inside out. It was supposed to be something about Him, about the Messiah. In fact, if you think about all that was happening, everything there was His. The temple was His. The, the sacrifices were His. All the symbols and signs were His. And they were using it all for their own glory. And Jesus is up there warning them, crying out, don't follow these leaders. Don't follow their false religion. No matter how close it may be to biblical Judaism, no matter how many elements you see in the Bible and you see in this false Judaism that seems similar, 
Don't follow them. At the heart of the issue, this is a false religion, he's saying. It's not true Judaism, and these are not true Jews because they're not following the Messiah. Don't follow them to the certain death of being punished, pulverized, crushed, broken to pieces. And those messages for us today. Don't follow false leaders. Don't fall for the folly of false religion. Don't be sucked into something synthetic or false. And let me tell you something, just like Jesus is calling out false Judaism of that day, we live in a day of plenty of false Christianity, don't we? Plenty of people are duped and sidelined. Even Christians, even genuine believers are sucked away and drawn into stupid ideas about the Bible, about the gospel, about truth. They're drawn away. They're enticed. Well, we're very quick to judge the Israelites, aren't we? We read a story like this and, oh, look at all these people running after false Judaism. But how many people who call themselves Christians run after false Christianity? Now, the end is the same. The warning is just as poignant today as it was back then. The ultimate warning is that if you reject Christ or if you substitute the real biblical Jesus for some made-up Jesus, you'll face the same judgment. Turn to him while there's still an opportunity. Jonathan Edwards preached famously as the first great awakening was heating up. He's famously sinners in the hands of an angry God, and he pictured humanity, people without Christ, as hanging by a spider's thread over hell. It's only by God's grace that you have not fallen in. This is, in essence, what Jesus was doing. He's preaching a hellfire brimstone sermon. He was up there calling people to reject the false religion and not fall to their death. Well, perhaps you need that message for you. Maybe there's someone here. Maybe you know about God. You know the story of the parable. You understand it in your mind. But the warning and the truth has not come to your heart. How do I know this? Well, because you have not had faith in Christ repented of your sins and followed after Him yet. For all of us who are believers, may we test our own hearts, may we test what we follow, what we read, what we ingest. Test these things and test your own heart to prove whether or not it is true. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You would give us this. And Lord, it's not easy always reading Your Word and getting these warnings and having stern statements of the Bible. I pray, Lord, that we would take these things seriously and understand that the first step of discernment is not thinking highly of ourselves, but having humility and realizing that we too can get sucked away, much like the people of Israel did. There are plenty of false teachers, false versions of Christianity, false churches, false movements that claim to be biblical, that claim to be of Christ, and yet with a little digging, Lord, we can find out these things are false and Draw us away from the truth. Help us to show discernment, knowing that, Lord, we are easily deceived. Give us wisdom. Give us the truth. I pray, Lord, again, that you would bless those who don't know you. Call them to salvation. Call them to true repentance. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you'll stand with me, we'll have a benediction. You can be dismissed. Now may we test ourselves to prove that we live in faith.
repentant, and with the hope that Jesus will come again soon. Amen.